Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar. And this is the first of what will be a 24-part series on the Irish War of Independence between 1919 and 1921. Today's episode starts our journey by focusing on the pivotal experience of World War I and the terrible toll it took on both those who served in the British Army and Irish people back in Ireland. The episode is based around previously unpublished letters from an Irish soldier at the front. Over the coming episodes, we'll follow the story as tensions rise in Ireland in the build-up to the outbreak of the war. So next week, we'll look at the story of the 1916 Rising. Then by episode three, or maybe four, the war will start, and all going well, sometime around next August or September, we'll reach the truce and famous Anglo-Irish Treaty, which would bring the conflict to an end. This series will be released on Mondays with a break every fourth week to allow me to stay on top of research and production. However, on that week off, I'll be hosting an exclusive Q&A over on Patreon for listeners who support the show with Dr. Brian Hanley from the History Department in Trinity College, Dublin. Brian is one of Ireland's leading historians on the period, so it'll be a great opportunity to ask him any questions you have. It's also a great way to support the show. You can find out more about that at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. For any of you who've listened to other series I've made, I'm hoping that you'll notice a big improvement on what's gone before in the coming episodes. This is down to an amazing team of people working on the series. Additional research was by the archivist and historian Sam McGrath. Sound was by Jason Looney. Additional narrations are by Aidan Crow and Therese Murray, and the artwork for the series is by Keith Hines. Putting this series together has only been possible because of listeners who support the show on Patreon. While their support has allowed me to expand the show, in return they do get exclusive content, which you can get today if you sign up on Patreon. This includes early access to ad-free versions of the show, episode guides, and then that Q&A I mentioned earlier with Dr. Brian Hanley, which will be on once a month. 
You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Also, if you want to follow me on socials, I'm at Irish History. That's all one word at Instagram and Twitter. And I'll be posting pictures of people featured in each episode there. Finally, I'd like to thank John Kerwin for some integral sources I used in this episode. John gave me a preview to the letters of Christopher Wandlesford, which will feature in his forthcoming book, Kilkenny Voices from the Western Front, which he has written with Niall Brannigan. Born in 1896, Christopher Wandlesford had a long life before him. At the moment of his birth, the cards were stacked in his favour. His parents, Richard Henry and Florence Wandlesford, were landlords and mine owners in North Kilkenny. Their wealth afforded the family an extravagant lifestyle available to very few at the time. Their home, an enormous mansion in the town of Castlecomer, had dozens of rooms and a live-in staff who waited on the family hand and foot. From an early age, Christopher enjoyed a lifestyle inconceivable to most at the time. His father, Richard Henry, recognising the importance of physical exercise, had even installed a gym in the house and the children were instructed in martial arts. Such wealth and privilege had a dramatic impact on the health and well-being of the family. While general life expectancy at the time of Christopher's birth was around 50, members of the family had been living much longer for decades. His father, Richard Henry, lived to 86 the landlord before him, Sarah Wandersford, had died at the age of 76. Even her father, a man born back in the 18th century, had lived to the age of 80. By the time Christopher was born, there was every reason to believe he would see the 1980s. However, after 1914, his life expectancy began to drop at an alarming rate. At the outbreak of the First World War, he postponed enrolment in Cambridge University and instead enlisted in the British Army. Aged 19 turning 20, he was on the threshold of the two age groups with the highest mortality rate. One in six soldiers under 20 were killed, while one in seven of all soldiers between 20 and 24 did not survive the war. The reasons for this were explicitly clear in Christopher's letters home to his mother Florence. His descriptions of life at the front revealed a scarcely believable, dystopian world. Autumn is plainly setting in here now, and the leaves are falling off the trees quite fast in the woods in which we are encamped. I noticed the change very much after coming down from the line. Of course, there is not a single green tree, or tree at all for that matter, within five or six miles. It seems we have to destroy everything as we advance. Villages are mere heaps of bricks, and groups of stumps mark places where woods once stood. The ground is simply ploughed up with the shell holes, and the ground over which we have recently advanced is strewn with equipment, rifles, and dead bodies, so that on the whole the scene is a rather desolate one. Of course, one can see green woods and fields beyond the German lines, and it seems a pity if these must be destroyed also. In the coming weeks and months, similar letters continued to arrive in Castlecomer, describing the relentless misery soldiers were enduring. I have been living miles away from civilization for the last ten days. The predominating feature for the last ten days has been mud, spelt in large letters. It was quite indescribable, and one got up to the waist in places. You can imagine how bad it was when I tell you that I had a man stuck fast in one place and took half an hour before I could get him out. 
I had my boots ripped open by the mud, and a large amount of it during the time we were up there. I hope that we have come out for the last time now, as I think we have done our bit in this vicinity. We had three officers killed last time we were up, bringing the total since we came to these regions to ten. It is rotten losing all one's friends like this. Disturbing as these accounts were, his mother Florence Wandersford presumably wondered if it was actually worse, if there was something her son wasn't telling her. There was clearly a lot of detail the letters didn't contain. This one, from June 1917, alluded to the fact the fear of army censors certainly was impacting on what he wrote. I do not think that I can be in the mood for letter writing this afternoon, as it has been about half an hour to write this little bit. Of course, there is little or no news to give, or rather, the kind of news that the censor would like. The flies are fairly bad here. A horrible fat things with green bodies. However, I suppose that they will get worse later in the year. Must close now. A fond love to all at the old home. From your ever-devoted son, Chris. This would be the last letter Florence received from her son. She would later scribble across that same letter. This was the last letter received from my precious firstborn. I was just going to answer it when we received the awful news. The awful news was that Christopher had been killed on June the 27th, 1917, after inhaling gas during a German attack. A letter would arrive in Castlecomer on behalf of Reverend Basil Keemer, the chaplain in Christopher's unit, the 4th Yorkshire Regiment. Chris is buried in Ashiat le Grand communal cemetery beside two brother officers who perished with him that same day, and with whom he posed for a photograph earlier that same month from his new camera, presumably near their shared dugout. While Florence would mourn the loss of her eldest son, the anxiety over loved ones at the front didn't end with his death. Her second eldest son, Ferdinand, was also serving in a frontline unit at the time. While he did survive the conflict, the man who returned was not the teenager who had gone to war. He was left suffering from PTSD. His sister Doreen, Florence's youngest daughter, remembered later in life how she noticed a change in her brother when he returned from the war. Ferdinand, aged about 19 years, came through those years without a scar, though I believe it harmed him emotionally. He used to suffer from nightmares after the war. His experiences must have been horrific. On one occasion, his commanding officer who was standing beside him was blown to pieces. Indeed, the end of the war brought little respite for Florence Wandersford, her family, or indeed wider Irish society, which had been transformed by the conflict. Aside from the loss of one son and another transformed by his experiences, it was obvious life could not return to what it had been in 1914, either for the Wandersford family or Irish society as a whole. By 1918, Ireland faced a very uncertain future. Political tensions about the future of the island were rising. Increasing class tensions also added to a sense of uncertainty as the poor who had suffered so much during the war demanded major social change and reforms. If truth be told, however, it was not just solely the First World War that had changed Ireland so much. Ever since Florence Wandlesford had first moved to the island after her marriage in 1896, Ireland had been changing rapidly, a process that was crystallised and accelerated by the war. Indeed, while Ireland was moving towards a war of independence in 1918, 
The roots of this conflict stretched back into the 19th century. Born on the Caribbean island of Antigua in 1870 to a German mother and a Canadian father, Florence von Schwartz Pryor, as she was known then, moved to Britain as a teenager. It had been on a trip to Ireland in 1894 that she seems to have first encountered her future husband, the wealthy Irish landlord and mine owner, Richard Henry Wandesford. However, the two did not marry until St. Patrick's Day, 1896. It was only at this point that Florence's life became interwoven with the rapidly changing world of late 19th century Ireland. After their wedding, the couple travelled to the continent for a honeymoon before slowly easing themselves into their life of privilege and wealth. Their first stop on the way home was at her husband's estates at Kirklington in Yorkshire. It was here where the Wandesford family had originated before they had arrived in Ireland in the 1630s to seize the land of the native O'Brennans of North Kilkenny. Over the following two centuries, the family's estates around the town of Castlecomer had grown to encompass about 20,000 acres of land, along with extensive coal deposits. By the time Florence would finally arrive in the town, in the summer of 1896, Castlecomer still held on to old traditions and had seemed not to be changed by the modern world. At times it appeared she had walked back into an almost feudal society where her husband was a patriarchal lord. On the day she arrived, the horse-drawn carriage that brought her into the town stopped a quarter of a mile outside of Castlecomer, and in a display of homage, several local men unhitched the horse from the carriage. They then took the animal's place, hauling the carriage with Florence and her husband on board through the streets of Castlecomer, which were festooned with decorations and thronged with her husband's tenants and miners. Passing under several triumphal arches emblazoned with the words, Welcome home, she slowly made her way to her new house, the sprawling mansion that was the Wandlesford's seat of power. There her husband, Richard Henry, addressed the crowds, thanking the people for their welcome. This bizarre, almost quasi-medieval ritual continued through that warm summer's evening before a fireworks display brought the proceedings to a close. On that evening, Castlecomer seemed like a harmonious, cohesive society with Florence and her husband at the apex. However, this was illusory. Within 22 years, at the end of the First World War in 1918, Castlecomer and indeed wider Irish society were on the brink of a revolution. The early years of Florence Wandersford's marriage and her life in Castlecomer had seemed uneventful. Already three months pregnant on her arrival, she had given birth to their eldest son, Christopher, in December 1896. In the coming decade, he was followed in quick succession by his brother Ferdinand, then two girls, Vera and Doreen, and finally the youngest, another boy, named after his father, Richard. Although born and raised in Castlecomer, the Wandersford family maintained a strict social hierarchy designed to reinforce their position at the top of local society, not only in the house but also in wider society. The small family of six were waited on by a live-in staff of ten, ranging from a butler and a footman through to a cook and scullery maid. However, rather than the cordial relationships depicted in series like Downton Abbey, it was common for staff to avoid contact with the family where possible and show complete deference the rest of the time. Doreen, the youngest of the children, later in her life, summarised this world she had grown up in the following terms. In those early days, there were two very important matters in everyday life. One was class and the other 
religion. Nowadays, this all seems very bigoted, but in those times it was not regarded as such. The upper class or gentry were respected by those in their service. To maintain this rigid hierarchy between the family and their tenants and workers, Richard Henry and Florence did not mix, socialise or fraternise with the local community, save on occasion the agent for the estate, Joseph Dobbs, who was a very wealthy man in his own right. Instead, they tended to socialise with other landowning families across North Kilkenny and on occasion the Marcus of Ormond, who was distantly related to Richard Henry and lived in Kilkenny Castle, 12 miles away. The same went for the children. While local kids in the pit villages around Castlecomer started working in the Wandersford mines in their early teens, Florence and Richard Henry's boys were sent to private schools in England. However rigid and unbending as this world seemed, its foundations were already being undermined when Florence had arrived in Ireland in 1896. By the 1890s, stereotypes of Ireland had changed little through the 19th century. It was thought by many to be a poverty-stricken country, and this was not without basis. In the capital, the living conditions of Dublin's working classes were notorious. Disease and malnutrition were rampant, partly due to the overcrowded and crumbling tenements, many of which dated to the mid-18th century. Indeed, these buildings were so decrepit that they collapsed on occasion, the worst such event killing seven people in 1913. In rural Ireland, where the majority of the population lived, many in the West lived year to year and faced the prospect of food shortages if government aid was not made available in times of bad harvests. Life expectancy, a blunt measure of living conditions, indicated improvements in the later 19th century were modest at best. In the 60 years between 1851 and 1911, life expectancy had only increased from four years from 50 to 54 by comparison, in Britain, where life expectancy had started at a lower point in 1851, it had by 1911 outstripped Ireland, increasing twice as fast. However, while many of the people were poor, Irish society was by no means backward. Through the 1880s and 1890s, it was rapidly changing, and in terms of politics at least, a highly sophisticated and modern political culture had taken hold at all levels in society. While her quasi-feudal welcome and aspects of her daily life in Castlecomer had intimated that Florence's husband, Richard Henry, ruled over the lives of his tenants in the same way his ancestors had. Nothing could be further from the truth. Increasingly, the power and influence of landlords like Richard Henry was being resisted, curbed and restrained. Simultaneously, those marginalised from politics, the working class, the peasantry and women were forcing their way into the political arena for the first time, which was leading to growing tensions. This created an existential crisis, not only for families like the Wandersfords, but it also questioned how British rule would function in Ireland into the future. For over two centuries, successive governments had relied on these landowning families, like the Wandersfords, to maintain influence and control across the island. However, by the opening years of the 20th century, it was clear their day was coming to an end. This had started as far back as the 1840s and the Great Famine. Vivid memories of the mass evictions of nearly 250,000 people by landlords in the later years of the Great Hunger had permanently changed the relationship between Irish landlords and their tenants. While tensions had always existed, these famine evictions instilled a steely determination among tenants, large and small, that such evictions would never be repeated. 
In the following decades, attempts were made to organise campaigns for increased rights. However, at the same time, the changing nature of the economy saw margins for landlords tighten and these competing interests, the tenants' demands for increased rights and security and the declining profits of landlords, set the stage for a major confrontation. When this came to a head in 1879, in something known as the Land War, the consequences were far-reaching and profound. The late 1870s in Ireland were marked by a series of poor harvests and, as poor tenants began to struggle to feed their families, many fell into rent arrears. In response, several major landlords in the West prepared to initiate mass evictions. However, steeled by the memories of the disastrous consequences of evictions in similar circumstances in the late 1840s, the tenants formed an organisation called the Land League in 1879. The League echoed what were at the time modern political organisations like the trade union movement in England and organised in an open democratic fashion, enlisting hundreds of thousands of members at its height. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. For three intense years between 1879 and 1882, the Land League effectively waged war on landlords, resisting evictions through protests, riots, boycotts and threats, but also demanded legislative reform from the government to increase tenants' rights. This struggle saw previously marginalised people take prominent positions. Michael Davitt, a working-class Irish famine emigrant from the north of England, emerged as one of the leading figures. In Castlecomer, the changing nature of Irish society was embodied in Annie Kenny, a woman who would become an important figure in the town, but played a prominent role in the Ladies' Land League, an organisation that saw women active in politics for the first time. By 1882, after three years of intense protests, the British government, increasingly concerned about the growing lawlessness across Ireland, granted some of the Land League's basic demands. Although these were limited in scope, they were the first in a series of concessions that heralded the beginning of the end for old landlord families. Indeed, while Florence Wanderstreet was not yet living in Castlecomer, the legacy of the land war had dramatic and ultimately negative consequences for her. When she married Richard Henry Wanderstreet, a landlord, it was at a time when this entire class was already facing a very uncertain future. The British government, fearing that unrest over land-related disputes 
could potentially lead to a much wider struggle for independence of one kind or another, had decided to resolve the land question permanently by the end of the 19th century. They hoped that if they allowed tenants to buy their farms from landlords, this would pacify Ireland. While this was affected through numerous land acts, the most comprehensive of these was the Wyndham Land Act of 1903. And it was this that had the greatest impact in Castlecomer. This provided £100 million of loans for tenants to buy their farms and under its terms nearly 300,000 farms changed hands as tenants became owners. Those who sold up included Richard Henry Wandesford who realised the world was changing and he needed to sell up. Landlordism, as it had existed since his ancestors came to Ireland in the 1630s, was at an end. In many communities, this dramatically changed the power structure. These land-owning families could no longer hold the threat of eviction over the population as a means of social control. However, in Castlecomer, the situation was slightly more complex. The influence of the Wandlesfords, while changed utterly, was not at an end. Rather than invest his money in the stock market or flutter it away on a lavish lifestyle, Richard Henry Wandlesford instead used the money he got from his land to transform the family's mining operation around Castlecomer. Previously, it had been poorly organised through a series of middlemen, but in the early 1900s, Richard Henry completely overhauled and modernised the mines. However, this process brought a new and profoundly modern conflict to Castlecomer, industrial class tension. In the coming years, as mining operations were concentrated into bigger pits, the miners began to organise into trade unions and in an industry where child labour and dangerous conditions were commonplace, disputes and strikes followed, which only added to the growing instability in the area. This phenomenon was not just limited to Castlecomer. While the Irish economy was nowhere near as industrialised as most in Europe, conflict between organised workers and employers was becoming more and more common, adding to a sense of tension in the country. In 1907, thousands of dock workers went on strike in Belfast, demanding their employers recognise their union. Then six years later, in 1913, employers in Dublin launched a sustained campaign to break trade unions in the city. This resulted in 20,000 workers being locked out of employment, leading to a four-month dispute which frequently saw the police attack the striking workers. This would see the workers in turn form their own paramilitary organisation, the Irish Citizen Army, to defend themselves. While the agitation over land and the growing labour unrest was challenging the old power structures of society before the First World War, ultimately it was the issue of political independence and opposition to it that was the most destabilising. As early as 1912, this was edging Ireland perilously close to a civil war. The crisis facing Ireland from 1912 onwards had roots that stretched back centuries. Depending on your interpretation of history, it may have gone as far back as the 12th century and Ireland's complex relationship with England. After the initial Norman conquest of the 1170s, England's domination of Ireland had taken various forms over the century, but it always amounted to the same thing. The island was dominated and controlled by the monarchs of England. In 1801, the nature of British control was strengthened even further when Ireland was subsumed into the United Kingdom of England, Scotland and Wales. A parliament that existed in Dublin was abolished and Ireland was governed directly by the Parliament of the United Kingdom, which sat in Westminster. While Ireland sent 100 MPs to London, their voice was drowned out by the 550 or so representatives drawn from other parts of the United Kingdom. Now this new arrangement proved deeply unpopular in Ireland and attempts were made 
by the government of the United Kingdom to win over the most disaffected group, Irish Catholics. Formal discrimination was ended through Catholic emancipation in 1829 and large subsidies were granted to the Catholic Church as well. However, the catastrophic handling of the Great Famine of the late 1840s by the British government cemented the existing resentment and distrust. In the later half of the 19th century, this led to growing demands for home rule, a form of self-governance for Ireland. While this might seem like a comparatively modest demand, it was extremely divisive in late 19th century Ireland and set the stage for the violent conflict that would embroil the country in the early 20th century. Over the centuries, considerable numbers of settlers from Britain had arrived in Ireland. The Wandersfords, for example, had first come in the 1630s. By the early 20th century, these families were Irish and considered themselves as such. However, many, particularly those who had arrived since the 17th century, wanted to maintain strong links to Britain. They therefore opposed Home Rule and as supporters of the union between Britain and Ireland were called Unionists. This divide between Home Rulers on the one hand and Unionists on the other split Irish society along numerous fault lines. For example, Unionism found its greatest support among Irish Protestants, while the island's Catholics tended to favour Home Rule. It also created a geographical divide, as support for Unionism was strongest in the northeast around Belfast, while Home Rule tended to dominate views in the south and west. It's important to note that these generalisations are precisely that, generalisations. There were Catholic Unionists, Protestant home rulers and most communities across Ireland had both unionists and home rulers in them. For example, in Castlecomer, the Wandersfords were what we might call moderate unionists, even if most of the area's inhabitants were supporters of home rule. While the issue of home rule divided Ireland through the late 19th century, the likes of the Wandersfords were not particularly concerned about it, given it seemed like an unattainable goal. In the United Kingdom, all legislation had to pass through the House of Lords and this body was a deeply conservative chamber dominated by landlords implacably opposed to Home Rule. Two attempts to pass legislation in the 1880s and 1890s had floundered in the House of Lords. However, this all changed in a major political crisis that erupted in England in 1910, which quickly spread to Ireland. A general election in January 1910 left the Parliament of the United Kingdom deadlocked with the two main parties, the Conservatives and the Liberals, evenly matched. A second election was held at the end of that year to resolve this crisis, but this only served to tighten the gap, leaving just one seat between the two. The only way to break the deadlock was for one of the parties to seek the support of the Irish Home Rulers, who had returned with 71 seats. The price for their support was clear and non-negotiable. The government would have to commit to a Home Rule Bill and as part of this they would also need to commit to breaking the power of the House of Lords. The Liberals accepted these conditions and a government was formed. True to their word, the Liberals first set about breaking the veto of the Lords. This saw the Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, who would be an important figure in the coming episodes, pass legislation called the Parliament Bill, which stated the Lords could only reject the same motion three times, after which the government could push ahead without their approval. After this became law, three Home Rule Bills, one in 1912 and two in 1913, were passed by the Commons, but defeated in the Lords. However, after the third defeat, under the provisions of the Parliament Act, the government could press ahead and enact Home Rule in Ireland without the consent of the Lords. 
While this all seemed very procedural, it was creating an unprecedented crisis on the ground in Ireland. In Ulster, where unionists were in a majority, they began to demand that the island should be partitioned and that the north of the island would not be subjected to home rule, instead remaining in the United Kingdom. This was vehemently opposed by home rulers and the debate quickly adopted militaristic dimensions. In January 1913, unionists formed the Ulster Volunteer Force, or UVF, a paramilitary organisation committed to resisting home rule with force. Ireland had taken the first step towards war. The second step followed a few months later with the formation of the Irish Volunteers, a paramilitary organisation committed to enforcing home rule. It's worth noting around this time Irish politics as a whole was becoming increasingly militarised. As we saw earlier, a third militia, the Citizen Army, was also formed in 1913. Tensions continued to mount when the British Army, theoretically neutral, threatened to mutiny if they were asked to impose home rule. Now in spite of this, the government in London pushed ahead and in 1914 prepared plans to introduce legislation. However, with tens of thousands in armed militias in Ireland prepared to go to war over the issue, civil war now loomed on the horizon. Indeed, it seemed inevitable in the summer of 1914. In Castlecomer, these tensions broke into the open in local elections held in the town that year. Richard Henry Wandesford took the controversial decision to stand for the local elections against the sitting councillor, John P. Fogarty, a supporter of Home Rule. This move made Wandesford the de facto unionist candidate, even if he refused to explicitly state his own views on the matter, only saying he would do his best to implement it if Home Rule was introduced. The contest was fought in an extremely underhand manner and ratcheted up tensions in the town. Wandesford was accused of threatening to close the mines, the major employer in Castlecomer, if he lost. Whatever the case, he won, ultimately by a comfortable margin of 130 votes. Nevertheless, the fact his rival, John P. Fogarty, managed to garner 319 votes in a town where the Wandesfords still owned many of the houses spoke volumes to the changing nature of Irish society. The rising tensions was evident in other electoral contests that summer. Florence Wandesford, standing as another de facto unionist candidate, took a pretty safe seat in the electoral district around Monin Row, a mining village outside Castlecomer, where the Wandesfords could exert huge influence. However, the very fact that she stood highlighted how much Ireland was changing and had changed in the 18 years since she had first arrived. On that summer's evening in 1896, when she had been welcomed to Castlecomer, her husband, Richard Henry had elicited laughter from the crowd when he joked that she might even make a speech on that occasion. Two decades later, in 1914, she was standing in an election. Ultimately, it was another victorious candidate, Annie Kenny, that veteran of the land war mentioned earlier, who embodied the changes sweeping through Castlecomer and Ireland best. Annie's life had changed dramatically since the land war. She had become an avid campaigner for home rule and a well-respected writer. She penned tracks under the pen name The Stormy Petrel, presumably inspired by the Russian revolutionary Maxim Gorky's poem of the same name. She had married Joseph Laracy, a veteran of the Irish Brigade, a group of Irish nationalists who fought against the British Army in the Boer War and now went by the name Annie Laracy. Annie also took a seat on Castlecomer District Council and would become a vocal opponent of the Wandesfords in the coming years. 
Indicative of the rising tension across Ireland, the elections had served to harden views within Castle Comer society that summer. Indeed, the uncompromising black and white language associated with conflict rather than compromise was starting to come to the surface as civil war loomed. Richard Henry Wandesford, in standing against the Home Rule candidate, had in the eyes of many people in the town made himself an enemy of the people. A letter to a local newspaper, the Kilkenny moderator, had warned. The fight was not a fight of Mr Fogarty against Mr Wandsford. It was a fight of the national organisation against an enemy of the national organisation. And the national organisation considered it purely and solely as that. Whether explicit or not, the move on the part of Florence and Richard Henry to wed themselves to the Unionist cause in that summer when civil war seemed imminent, was potentially very, very dangerous. Political violence had a long history in the area. Indeed, their home, Castle Comer House, had been rebuilt around 1800 after it had been burned in the 1798 rebellion. Ultimately, this civil war was averted not through mediation or conciliation, but instead through the act of an assassin. On June 28, 1914, less than three weeks after the election of Annie Laracy and the Wandersfords, a Serbian nationalist, Gavrilo Princip, assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand on the far side of the continent. This changed the course of history in almost every city, town and village in Europe and further afield. Inconsequential as the assassination seemed to many in Ireland in late June, it would lead directly to the outbreak of the First World War six weeks later. As the British government prepared for the conflict, plans to implement home rule in Ireland were shelved and the tensions that seemed likely to bring about a civil war almost immediately vanished. Both unionist and home rule leaders rushed to back the British war effort. John Redmond, the leader of the Home Rule Party, toured the country, calling on men to enlist, something that would have a huge impact in years to come. He was opposed by a minority who, for the time being, did remain marginal though. Redmond argued that the government would repay a display of loyalty by supporters of Home Rule in Ireland by granting the measure once the war ended. However, while Redmond toured the country, Irish Unionist leaders were also encouraging their supporters to enlist, making precisely the same point that if they supported the war, they would be rewarded afterwards. Given the Home Rulers and the Unionists held mutually exclusive views, they could not both be right. But in the fervour of August 1914, with all the talk of a war to end all wars, no one was thinking past the expected rapid victory. In Castlecomer, Richard Henry Wandesford threw himself into mobilising the local community and encouraged young men from the town to enlist. His own sons, Christopher and later Ferdinand, as we saw earlier, answered the call enlisting not in Castlecomer, but instead in Yorkshire. In the first few weeks of the war, it seemed the conflict would defuse the growing tensions in Castlecomer and across Ireland. The thorny question of home rule had been put in the long finger and under the Defence of the Realm Act introduced at the start of the war, strikes and industrial disputes could be stopped in essential industries like coal mining. However, it was only three weeks into the conflict that the reality of the war was brought home when the first Castle Comer man was killed. He was an 18-year-old, a labourer, Joseph Gardner from Chatsworth's Row in the town. He was the first of dozens to die. Soon towns and villages across Ireland were starting to receive notifications of soldiers killed and injured, not to mention the harrowing reports of army life like those of Christopher Wandesford. In time, the war, rather than derail the building tensions and demands for change, only served to amplify and accelerate them. 
While the conditions at the front were appalling and those who experienced them were never quite the same, this did not prove to be the decisive factor in Ireland. Unlike countries such as Germany and Russia, the veterans of World War I, with some exceptions, did not play a decisive role in Irish politics in the coming years. Instead, it was the experience of the war on the home front and the fear of being sent to fight in what seemed like a pointless conflict that proved far more important. By 1916, the war was taking a severe toll on life back in Ireland as the cost of living was sharply increasing, which served to ratchet up tensions across the island again. This could be seen in Castle Comer in the words of a speech from Annie Laracy, who had been elected in 1914 when she protested about the export of food from Ireland. We protest in the strongest manner against the export of Irish food in the present crisis, food that is wanted for our own people. And we call the serious and prompt attention of the people, especially of the Irish farmers, to the very real danger, which it is time they should realise and stand determinedly against. This is a clear duty to their country, to the very poor and to the labouring classes who are so cruelly hit by the excessive war taxation and the enormous rise in the price of food, clothing and other necessaries. She would go on to invoke the memory of the Great Famine, where exports of food in late 1846 had led to terrible suffering and starvation. For Annie, this was all related to home rule. She wanted Ireland to have greater control over its own affairs. This experience that Annie was talking about was one of several factors that was serving to radicalise the wider Irish population during the war. It also opened the leadership of the Home Rule movement, who had been such fervent supporters of the conflict for direct criticism. Annie Laracy was one of the many supporters of Home Rule who became increasingly disillusioned with the party leader John Redmond. After all his talk in 1914, two years later, he had nothing to show for his support for the British war effort. Laracy said, Mr Redmond lost the chance, a chance no other leader ever got, of getting a good measure of Home Rule, one that would be acceptable to the whole country at the time of the declaration of war. What were they getting for the thousands of Irishmen who were fighting in the trenches? Nothing. The radicalisation of Irish political opinion was accelerated as well by what proved to be a disastrous move by the British government. In 1916, they began to moot the idea of introducing conscription to Ireland to fill what was a growing manpower crisis in the British army. To try and soften the pill of forcing men to fight in an ever more unpopular war, they promised to introduce Home Rule at the same time. This only served to make home rule in this form unpopular. Annie Laracy, in another speech from December 1916, gave voice to this. She, like most Irish people, was opposed to conscription. We need no conscription in Ireland. We will have none. From north to south, from east to west, we are agreed upon this point and we call on the people of Ireland to protest with no uncertain voice and with all their strength against it. Likewise, she had no truck for home rule being offered on such terms. A possibility of the twin gift of home rule and conscription to Ireland is spoken of, but we will have no home rule at such a price. This issue of threatened conscription is something that we return to. Indeed, in 1918, as we will see in coming episodes, it nearly led to a full-scale revolt across the island. However, by 1916, phenomenal changes were already underway in Irish society. For someone like Florence Wandesford, she could no longer be secure about her future, given class tensions were rising. 
Furthermore, the war had completely upended Irish politics. The Home Rule movement that had dominated Irish politics for decades was in crisis because its leaders had supported the war and they were facing a new challenge. As we'll see in the next episode, by the end of 1916, a resurgent militant republicanism was demanding full independence and eating into their support. To understand this, we need to turn to a crucial event, indeed arguably the most important single event in the build-up to the War of Independence, the 1916 Rising and the British Army's reaction to it. In the next episode, therefore, we'll travel to Dublin in April 1916 and look at these events. Listeners on Patreon will have exclusive early access to this episode from Friday. If you sign up there at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast, you'll also get access to the Q&A with Dr. Brian Hanley at the end of the month as well. So that address is patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. I'll be back next week with the next episode. Till then, Sloan.